Chapter Eight of Prejudices, First Series. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shasta, Oakland, California. Prejudices, First Series by H. L. Mencken. Chapter eight Hermann Sudermann The fact that Sudermann is the author of the most successful play that has come out of Germany since the collapse of the Romantic movement is the most eloquent of all proofs, perhaps, of his lack of force and originality as a dramatist. Heimat, Englished, Frenched, and italianized as magda gave a new and gaudy leading role to all the middle-aged chewers of scenery they fell upon it as a new marguerite gautier and with it they coaxed the tears of all nations that was in the middle nineties today the piece seems almost as old-fashioned as the princess bonnie and even in germany it has gone under the counter if it is brought out at all it is to adorn the death agonies of some doddering star of the last generation sudermann was one of the first deer flushed by arno holz and johannes schlaff the founders of german naturalism he had written a couple of successful novels frau sorge and der Katzensteg, before the Uberbrettel got on its legs, and so he was a recruit worth snaring. The initial fruit of his enlistment was Die Ehre, a reductio ad absurdum of Prussian notions of honor, as incomprehensible outside of Germany as Franz Adam Berlein's Zaffenstreich, or Karl Bleibtreu's De Edelson der Nation. Then followed Sodom's Ende, and after it, Heimat. Already the emptiness of naturalism was beginning to oppress Sudermann, as it was also oppressing Hauptmann. The latter, in 1892, rebounded from it to the unblushing romanticism of Hannelis Himmelfart. As for Sudermann, he chose to temper the rigors of the Schlaff-Holz formula by Ibsen out of Zola with Sardoodledom. The result was this Heimat, in which naturalism was wedded to a mellow sentimentality caressing to audiences bred upon the drama of perfumed adultery. The whole last scene of the play, indeed, was no more than an echo of Auger's Le Marriage d'Olympe. It is no wonder that even Sarah Bernhardt pronounced it a great work. Since then, Sudermann has wobbled, and in the novel as well as in the drama. Lacking the uncanny versatility of Hauptmann, he has been unable to conquer the two fields of romance and reality. Instead, 
he has lost himself between them a rat without a tail das hoch lied his most successful novel since frau sorge is anything but a first-rate work its opening chapter is a superlatively fine piece of writing but after that he grows uncertain of his way and toward the end one begins to wonder what it is all about no coherent idea is in it it is simply a sentimentalization of the unpleasant if it were not for the naughtiness of some of the scenes no one would read it an american dramatist has made a play of it a shocker for the same clowns who were entranced by Brough's les avres the trouble with suderman here and elsewhere is that he has no sound underpinnings and is a bit uncertain about his characters and his story he starts off furiously let us say as a zola and then dilutes zolaism with romance and then pulls himself up and begins to imitate ibsen and then trips and falls headlong into the sugar-bowl of sentimentality lily Sespenak in das hohe lied swoons at critical moments like the heroine of a tale for chambermaids it is almost as if lord jim should get converted at a gospel mission or nora helmer let down her hair but these are defects in suderman the novelist and dramatist and in that suderman only in the short story they conceal themselves he is done before he begins to vacillate in this field indeed all his virtues of brisk incisive writing of flashing observation of dexterous stage management of emotional fire and address have a chance to show themselves and without any wearing thin the book translated as the indian lily contains some of the best short stories that german or any other language for that matter can offer they are mordant succinct and extraordinarily vivid character studies each full of penetrating irony and sardonic pity each with the chill wind of disillusion blowing through it each preaching that life is a hideous farce that good and bad are almost meaningless words that truth is only the lie that is easiest to believe it is hard to choose between stories so high in merit but surely the purpose is one of the best and all the latter-day germans only ludwig thoma in ein bayrischer soldat has ever got a more brilliant reality into a crowded space here in less than fifteen thousand words sudermann rehearses the tragedy of a whole life and so great is the art of the thing that one gets a sense of perfect completeness almost of exhaustiveness antony wiesner the daughter of a country innkeeper falls in love with robert messerschmidt a medical student 
and they sin the scarlet sin to robert perhaps the thing is a mere interlude of midsummer but to tony it is all life's meaning and glory robert is poor and his degree is still two years ahead it is out of the question for him to marry very well tony will find a father for her child she is her lover's property and that property must be protected and she will wait willingly careless of the years for the distant day of triumph and redemption all other ideas and ideals drop out of her mind she becomes an automaton moved by the one impulse the one yearning she marries one vigon a decayed innkeeper he poor fool accepts the parentage of her child her father rich and unsuspicious buys them a likely inn they begin to make money and then begins the second chapter of tony's sacrifice she robs her husband systematically and steadily she takes commissions on all his goods she becomes the uri of his bar that trade may grow and pickings increase mark by mark the money goes to robert it sees him through the university it gives him his year or two in the hospitals it buys him a practice it feeds and clothes him and his mother with him the months and years pass endlessly the young doctor's progress is slow but finally the great day approaches soon robert will be ready for his wife but vigon what of him tony thinks of half a dozen plans the notion of poisoning him gradually formulates itself not a touch of horror stays her she is by this time beyond all the common moralities a monomaniac with no thought for anything save her great purpose but an accident saved Phygon. Tony, too elaborate in her plans, poisons herself by mischance, and comes near dying. Very well, if not poison, then some more subtle craft. She puts a barmaid into Wigan's path. She manages the whole affair. Before long, she sees her victim safely enmeshed a divorce follows the inn is sold her father's death makes her suddenly rich at last she is off to greet her lord that meeting tony waits in the little flat that she has rented in the city she and her child the child of robert robert is to come at noon as the slow moments pass the burden of her happiness seems too great to bear then suddenly the ecstatic climax the ring at the door a gentleman entered a strange gentleman wholly strange had she met him on the street she would have not known him he had grown old forty fifty a hundred years yet his real age could not be over twenty-eight 
he had grown fat. He carried a little paunch around with him, round and comfortable, and the honorable scars gleamed in round red cheeks. His eyes seemed small and receding, and when he said, Here I am at last, it was no longer the old voice clear and a little resonant which had echoed and re-echoed in her spiritual ear. He gurgled as though he had swallowed dumplings. An oaf without an oaf within. Tony is for splendors, triumphs, the life. Robert has settled down. His remote village, hard by the Russian border, is to his liking. He has made comfortable friends there. He is building up a practice. He is, of course, a man of honor. He will marry Tony, willingly, and with gratitude, even with genuine affection. Going further, he will pay back to her every cent that ever came from Wygon's till. He has kept a strict account. Here it is in a little blue notebook. Seven years of entries. As he reads them aloud, the events of those seven years unroll themselves before Tony, and every mark brings up its picture. Stolen cash and trinkets, savings in railroad fares and food, commissions upon furniture and wines, profits of champagne debauches with the county councillor, sharp trading in milk and eggs, suspense and longing in inextricable web of falsification and trickery, of terror and lying without end. The memory of no guilt is spared her. Robert is an honest and honorable man. He has kept strict account. The money is waiting in bank. What is more, he will make all necessary confessions. He has not, perhaps, kept to the letter of fidelity. There was a waitress in Berlin. There was a nurse at the surgical clinic. There is even now a Lithuanian servant-girl at his bachelor quarters. The last named, of course, will be sent away forthwith. Robert is a man of honor, a man sensitive to every requirement of the punctilio, a gentleman. He will order the announcement cards, consult a clergyman, and not forget to get rid of the Lithuanian and air the house. Poor Tony stares at him as he departs. Will he come back soon? asks the child. I scarcely think so, she answers. That night she broke the purpose of her life, the purpose that had become interwoven with a thousand others, and when the morning came she wrote a letter of farewell to the beloved of her youth. A short story of rare and excellent quality, a short story, oh, miracle, worth reading twice. It is not so much that its motive is new. That motive, indeed, has appeared in fiction many times, though usually with the man as the protagonist, as that its workmanship is superb. Sudermann here shows that 
for all his failings elsewhere he knows superlatively how to write his act divisions are exactly right his scenes up there are magnificently managed he has got into the thing that rhythmic ebb and flow of emotion which makes for great drama and in most of the other stories in this book you will find much the same skill no other perhaps is quite as good as the purpose but at least one of them the song of death is not far behind here we have the tragedy of a woman brought up rigorously puritanically stupidly who discovers just as it is too late that love may be a wild dance an ecstasy an orgy i can imagine no more grotesquely pathetic scene than that which shows this drab preacher's wife watching by her husband's deathbed while through the door comes the sound of amorous delirium from the next room and then there is a strangely moving christmas story merry folk pathos with the hard iron in it and there are autumn and the indian lily elegies to lost youth the first of them almost a fit compliment to joseph conrad's great pain to youth triumphant altogether a collection of short stories of the very first rank right off das hohe lied frau soge and all the plays a pseudomon remains who must be put in a high and honorable place and will be remembered End of chapter 8